Good evening. Four years ago, we went to Spanish Wells. It's a half mile by a mile and a half island in the Bahamas. Maybe four and a half years ago, my wife and my kids and I went for the first time. And um, the people of God were were weeping, not not out in the open. Uh, you'd go over to their homes and and you'd begin to talk with them. And then you'd get past the this is nice weather that we're having and it's nice to meet you and that sort of thing. And then they would weep. Uh, they were weeping because they were losing their young, they were losing their young generation and they knew it. Two years ago we went and what was under the surface four years ago was then out in the open. They were, they were weeping openly in the men's prayer meeting. Um, I remember numerous different ladies weeping at, at the state of things. Every form of sin that a person would want to find was available on the island. Um, this is a unique little place in the world. It's, as I said, a half mile by a mile and a half. There are three gospel preaching churches on the island, I understand. There's 1,300 people on the island. This is such a unique, protected little place. It's illegal to buy alcohol there. Um, and yet, every form of sin these kids were getting into, and the parents knew it. Uh, they knew almost wholesale they were losing the young generation of Spanish Wellians. They wept before the Lord. They cried out to the Lord. They had Joe Reese come down and, and have two weeks of gospel meetings. I saw Joe later. That was June. I saw Joe in August. And I said, Joe, how did it go? And his answer was this. He said it was just like preaching like this. He said, he said it wasn't like people weren't praying. He said that 25 men would come out and weep on their faces before the Lord, crying out to the Lord to move. And then they would preach. He said, I would preach with all my might. But he said there was just no breakthrough. And he said, you could tangibly feel and sense the spiritual warfare. And he gave several illustrations of that. We had the privilege of going in mid-October to mid-November. And, and I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed about, about what uh, I should say to God's people in the assembly on Spanish wells. And I didn't pray and pray and pray and pray because I didn't know what God's message was. I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed because I did know what God's message was for them. I had a month to say it and I took a month to say it. But, but the message basically was, was this. There's sin in the assembly that you've refused to deal with. You all know it. You're the ones who tell me and I can testify and witness that what you're saying is true. If and when you deal with the sin in the assembly that you've refused to deal with, the Spirit of God at that point will be free. The free-flowing ministry of the Spirit of God. You'll stop grieving Him. You'll stop quenching Him. And then you will have an unhindered access in prayer before God. Then you'll get the answers to your requests. I wish you all could have been there on the Tuesday night. That's their midweek prayer meeting. Um, I have the privilege of seeing a lot of repentance amongst God's people. That's probably my favorite word in all the world, repentance. And I, and I see a lot of repentance around North America amongst God's people. And I thank the Lord for that. I praise the Lord for that. You know what I thank the Lord for more than when I see repentance amongst God's people? When I see God's elders repent. When I see the leaders of the people of God repent. At that point... Oh, I get excited. 
the first guy that stood up is the guy. He doesn't have any special position more than another man, but you'll know what I mean. The whole assembly kind of looks to him as, as a patriarch. He stood up first and he confessed the sins of the people of God. And I don't mean any secret sins that people didn't know about. I mean the publicly known sins that everybody knew about. And then another elder stood up and confessed the sins of the people of God. And another elder, boy, I was excited for them. Would you raise your hand if you've heard some about what the Lord did on Spanish Wells 18 months ago? Good, good. So a handful of you. They decided to have gospel meetings again. This time they had Nate Bramson come back. They targeted the young people. Wednesday night they had about 120 young people. I'll throw this in there for later on in the message. Um, The Lord burdened. I didn't know what they were doing on Spanish Wells. But the Lord burdened our assembly in Topeka, Kansas to pray for them. I, I simply stood and said, could we please pray for revival on Spanish Wells on that Wednesday night? I didn't know that was night number one for the gospel meetings. 120 people in Span- or on, on the ball field that night, 150 the next night, 180 the night after that. I, had, I was down there three weeks ago, two weeks ago, and it was actually more dramatic than I had ever understood before. 100% chance of rain all day long. I'm leaving out a million details. I just want to tell you just the essence of it. You know, that night while Nate Bramson was preaching the gospel, it was pouring all around this little half mile by mile and a half island. It was pouring everywhere except on the ball field. Isn't that awesome? You know what that is? That's a physical manifestation of spiritual power. It's the mighty right arm of God showing himself. On the last word of the last message... I've had this confirmed to me by like 20 or probably 30 or 40 people. On the last word of the last message on Friday night, all of the electric power went out on the island. And a mighty rushing wind came in off of the ocean. And then it just died dead still. And Nate, standing in front of 180 young people, he called them forward. I don't know the exact words that he said. I don't know how he said it. But he said, if you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, then I want you to stand up and come forward. And he warned them not to mess around with God, to be serious about it. Somewhere around 65, I've heard, I've heard a few less and a few more, somewhere around that number accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior that night. More than that number, I understand, stood up from their seats. And Nate called for this too. If you, if, you, if you are a believer, if you accepted God's free gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ long ago, but you've been living like a pagan, you're talking 1,300 people. Everybody knows what everybody else is doing. If you're a believer, but you've been living like the devil, and you need to repent from that, and he stressed, don't you mess around with Jesus Christ. But if you're serious, and if you want to take a stand for Jesus Christ, then stand up and come. So more than than got saved that night, that's that's awakening, right? Those that got saved, that's awakening, life from the dead. More than that, came down the aisle and they repented. That's revival. On Spanish wells, there was a revival that overflowed into awakening. You know what I find massively, massively encouraging? To my God, to your God, what I refer to as our island, North America, it's no bigger, no more of a challenge, no more intimidating for our God to overcome than Spanish Wells is. He has swept our island before with revival in the past. He can sweep our island again with revival. Do you believe that? 
Oh, I long, I hunger, I ache for those things. I know we started out, and I was saying amen the whole time. We started out with the thought of different groups in the North American church that desperately need revival. One person put it this way, when should we seek revival? When God's evident blessing is withdrawn. When presumption is widespread, like Samson, he he wist not that the Spirit had gone from him. Boy, I read my New Testament, I read the book of Acts, and I see a completely different church than the one I live in. When contentedness prevails, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. When holiness is ignored, is it a grief to you, the state of things, the moral state of things? I'm not criticizing and, and I'm not even complaining in that sense, but it's hard to even talk about it without crying. Lynn and I do premarital counseling. We love to do premarital counseling. We work with what I would just call the cream of the crop, serious-minded young people. We love it. One of the first questions I ever ask them is, is are you currently honoring the Lord with your physical relationship? It's one, I've learned that. I didn't start out that way years ago, but I've learned you have to be direct. Over 50% of them, by the time they get to us, are not currently honoring the Lord Jesus with their physical relationship. You go to Bible camps, and I go to Bible camps all over North America. The immorality on staff at our Bible camps is just devastating. I think of Eli's sons. Selfishness and immorality. Filthy priests. When should we seek revival? When holiness is ignored? When, when prayer is anemic? I don't think we really have to argue about that one. God forbid that I should sin in ceasing to pray for you. And then finally, when soul winning is neglected. So long story short, I think we would all agree that we desperately need revival. And just for clarity's sake, I'm going to focus I may slip and use the term in in a way I don't mean to, but I'm going to focus on that word revival um, in that sense of revive, life again. So the work of God amongst the Christians, the work of God that the people of God desperately need in in North America. Um, Our topic for tonight is preaching and praying that stirs the heart. Preaching and praying that stirs the heart. What part does preaching play in this? What part does praying play in this? In this, uh, in, you don't have to turn here, but in Luke chapter 25 or 23, it's Jesus Christ is accused of stirring up the people. Well, that's true, isn't it? He stirred up the people in all different kinds of ways. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, let us consider how to stir up one another. In Second Peter 1, I think it is right to stir you up. In Second Peter chapter 3, I write to you to stir up your pure minds by reminder. And all I want to do is just simply illustrate that that um, preaching uh, that stirs up the heart is a needed goal and preaching that stirs up the heart is a biblical goal. So turn, if you would, to First Corinthians, chapter 14. If you're taking notes, point number one in my outline is just simply preaching that stirs up the heart. And it's a needed goal, and it's a biblical goal. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse number 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. 
for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So here in 1 Corinthians 14, you have, of course, in its context, a contrast between the gift of prophecy, the public proclamation of God's word and the spiritual gift of tongues. And so he's setting things in order. Verse one through five is the test of edification. Does the public ministry build up the Christians? We'll talk more about that in just a second. In verses six through 12, you have the test of intelligibility. Is it clear? Preaching that stirs the heart must be clear. My favorite preacher in my college years, he, he used to go over messages with the young Bible college students and they gave us a chance um, those years ago to, to give 10 minute messages in the local assembly on Wednesday nights. And I studied for weeks for my 10 minute message and would practice it. It would be five minutes. And I thought, how on earth do you ever study enough to get a 10 minute message? And and uh, I was so nervous and, you know, but I gave my message and eventually I met with this guy and and I told him, I said, you're my favorite preacher. And and he smiled graciously and he said this, he said, my number one goal in my public ministry is clarity. He said, I want it to be crystal clear what I'm trying to communicate. He said, I pray about that and I work toward that. And that's my number one goal. And I said, that's your number one goal. And then you know what he said? He said, young speakers focus on information. Mature speakers, they have their information down, definitely, but they focus on communication. And that's exactly what this this is arguing for. In the public ministry of God's word, preaching that stirs the heart, one essential quality is that it has to be crystal clear. If you do not have it in your head exactly what you're trying to communicate, then a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. If you don't know exactly what you're trying to say, there's no way the people of God will know exactly what you're trying to say. And then finally, uh, verses 13 uh, through 25 is the test of profitability. So just very simply, we're going to dig more in detail here in just a second. You've got these three principles about preaching that stirs the heart. Does it build up God's people? Is it clear? Is it profitable? And that section concludes with... um, the functioning, the public functioning of the spiritual gifts that God has given his church. It either comes to the conclusion that people come in in verse number 23 and say, you're crazy, right? If everybody's speaking in tongues, if it's out of control, then it says the uninformed or the unbeliever will come in and say, you're out of your mind. Or they'll come in, go through this incredible list in verse 24 and 25, which concludes that they'll leave bearing the testimony that God is truly in that place. Have you ever seen that happen? My brother-in-law, the first time he ever came to the assembly, he was an unbeliever. Uh, He walked in the doors. Um, He came. He broke bread. He wasn't my brother-in-law at the time, but uh, he came in and he sat down, sat through breaking of bread. We hardly knew him. Listen to a message. I have no recollection of who spoke or any of the rest of it. There were probably 18 of us in the assembly at the time in Topeka, Kansas. He just was very polite and gracious and left. He drove home to his unsaved roommate who's still unsaved today. And the roommate said, well, what did you think? You know what my unsaved at the time brother-in-law said? 
He said, I'm going to go back. And the roommate said, why? He said, God was there. Isn't that amazing? He just saw the simple functioning of the New Testament church and he came to the conclusion, right? This was a religious man. He'd been baptized seven times, right? Eventually he did get saved. Eventually we did talk to him about baptism and he said, I knew it. I knew you guys were going to tell me I had to get baptized again. Um, eventually he, eventually, um, anyways, I'm going to leave the rest of that out. But, but um, is it profitable? What is the end conclusion? What's the end result of the public ministry? Now I want to focus in for our purposes tonight on one verse. So if you'll look at chapter 14 and verse number three. He who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. What I want to highlight is, is that the scripture does not record this. He who prophesies speaks information. Notice that it doesn't say that. And yet, and yet across, across North America, over and over and over and over again, I find that we're informing people to death at times. When I started out years ago, this is what I did. Um, I was speaking three out of four Sundays a month in our local assembly at that point. Um, I would get up on a Sunday morning and I would tell them everything I knew about verse four. And then I would tell them everything I knew about verse five. And then I would start into verse six and I would look over at the clock and say, oh, we're out of time. We better close in prayer. And that was my entire homiletical style. Right. I just thought, OK, we're feeding God's people. And all I was doing was informing them. Right. I was just pouring out as much information on them as I could. And what I want you to notice is that the prophet, right, it'd be like a modern day teacher. The difference between a prophet and teacher is where you get your information. A prophet received his revelation directly from the Lord and gave it to the people. A teacher receives his revelation from the word of God and then gives it to the people. So he's talking about the public ministry of God's word. And he says there's a threefold purpose, according to this verse, for the one who stands in front of God's people. Uh, number one, he says edification. If you're taking notes, I would encourage you to jot down the thought. It's to enlighten and enable. You're to build them up. Shine light on the word of God. Use illustrations to shine light on the truths that you're bringing out of the word of God. You enlighten, you you enable. I love to watch sheep after a good meal. I love the way sheep respond after a good meal when they're rejoicing in the Lord Jesus Christ. I just, I love that. There's a, a beautiful thread that runs through the, the pastoral epistles that sound doctrine, right? Healthy doctrine equals or leads to healthy Christians. So we have to enlighten. We have to, we have to enable. Now, this is the real key for our thought tonight. Number two, it says he, he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation. If you're taking notes, then you can jot down the thought to encourage or to stimulate. So here's our topic, right? Preaching that stirs the heart. And right there, it's talking about the public ministry of God's word. And it says the prophet is supposed to speak exhortation to encourage or to stimulate so if all you're doing is informing the people of God, you have one, you have a stool that's supposed to have three legs, according to this verse, and you're standing on one leg. You take out the two legs, it's just going to topple over. So to, to encourage or to stimulate. 
I have to say, I have to say, I love this. Um, I shamelessly repeat messages. Uh, I spend time in my office before the Lord, um, on my face, in my Bible, and um, the Lord gives me messages. He gives me burdens. And then I have the privilege of going around North America, and I just think of it like beating a drum. A carpenter wouldn't buy a tool and then use it once and throw it away. And in my mind, messages are tools. Now, it can't just be done thoughtlessly. It's not like a circuit. I mean, I understand the downfalls and the pitfalls, but but I just love the open door around North America just to beat the drum. I've spoken more on prayer in the past 18 months than any other subject around North America. And the message that I've seen the Lord use more than any other message is a message that that uh, by God's grace, I put together on biblical reasons why the Lord does not answer prayer. And one of those reasons is husbands that don't cherish their wives. First Peter three, seven, right? You don't dwell with them according to understanding. You don't treat them with honor. That, that Greek word is translated precious multiple times throughout the book of first Peter. So if a husband doesn't treat his wife as precious, then his prayers are hindered. So I've given that message at family camps and assemblies and I don't know how many times, 30 times, 40 times around North America. And I would gladly keep going, giving that message. There's a brother who came down the aisle. Um, we had an hour uh, at a family camp and we took one hour just to unpack first Peter chapter three and verse number seven. And we just walked through every little piece of that of that verse. And a brother came right up afterwards. He's a brother that I love, a brother that I respect, an elder amongst God's people a good elder amongst God's people. He came down the aisle. He was trying not to cry. He gave me this long, full-bodied hug and just held on to me. And he finally, he let me go and he kind of pulled back like this and I looked at him and he said this. He said, I have to stop abusing my wife. And he didn't mean pummeling my wife. He didn't mean, I'm not trying to be silly, but he didn't mean I have to stop throwing frying pans at my wife. He meant, I have to stop being harsh with my wife with my words. I have to start honoring and cherishing my wife. He was living with a hindered prayer life. So the proper preaching of God's word, I'll just put it this way. The biblical proper preaching of God's word leads to revival. And that's what this says. He who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation to encourage or to stimulate revival in that sense. I know we've been talking about it in very different senses, but the revival in that sense would be a newfound conformity to God's word where you're living a hindered Christian life. You see that because of God's word, you confess that the the thing that's been blocking you from intimacy or hindering your prayers is removed and you have a newfound intimacy, a newfound conformity. Mike Atwood was out east. For all I know, some of you might have been there, but there was a week of, I think it's like 10 days of gospel meetings, and they start out on a Sunday morning with a message for the Christians. And Mike was deeply burdened. I remember praying with him every day during this period. He was deeply burdened about the gospel. And um, he started out on the Sunday morning. He had 45 minutes to walk through this. But he basically said, if we, as the believers in Jesus Christ, will not take our sin seriously... How on earth can we expect unbelievers to take their sins seriously over the next 10 days? And then he called them to repent. I think if you know Mike very well, you know that he wouldn't do this very often. But he actually had an altar call not to come get saved, but to come repent. You know who the first person down the aisle was? An elder in the assembly. 
weeping. I love it when elders repent. Elders can be tough cookies to crack. Leading God's people in repentance. I don't mean manipulation or anything fake. He recognized his sin. The Lord put his finger on his life and he came right down to, to weep and repent before God and to be right. I don't remember whether Mike said it was 12 or 15, but right in that range, people just came down to make things right. You know, they saw someone saved almost every night during that gospel campaign. You think there's a connection between revival amongst the Christians and awakening amongst the lost? Of course there is. So to edify is to build up, to exhort is to encourage and stimulate. And then there's a third one. Um, Speak comfort to men. That's to support amid the storms. I already told you as as a young brother, having no idea what I was doing, I would just inform people to death. And that's what I did for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And this, this verse taught me the threefold. Now I know that there's more to the discussion, but according to that verse, there's a threefold purpose of a person that would stand up and speak God's word. You want the people of God to be edified. You want the people of God to be encouraged and stimulated. And you want the people of God to be comforted. The first time I came across this, I was actually teaching through Corinthians. I got to this point, studying ahead. I got to this point and I thought, wow. And so I went back to my passage and, that I'd already studied for that Sunday. And I said, what about this passage edifies? And this is how I ended my message. And I didn't know any better way to do it. So I simply asked God's people, do you see in that passage what is supposed to build up the people of God? And then I told them, I said, do you see what in this passage is supposed to spur us on? And then I told them. And then this is the part I vividly remember. I said, do you see what the things about God in this passage are supposed to give you comfort in your Christian life? You know, there were three people. I could still name them. There are three people that when I started talking about how that passage is supposed to comfort us, just sat there and wept in the audience. That had never happened to me for years. It was just like my public ministry just turned a corner. The proper biblical preaching of God's word stirs the heart. It doesn't just inform people. We've so emphasized informing people that I think we've sometimes fallen short of that biblical goal. Now, let me say one more thing before we transition to prayer. Um, I have this in all capital letters in my notes. You must apply. Right? So you have prophecy, you have edification, you have exhortation, and then I'm adding to that, and I'll give my biblical evidence here in just a second. You must apply. Your message is not done till you have applied what you have said. Boy, we, we horrifically lack application. In fact, this is just my feeble observation. I would say, this is me, in North America, my number one thing that we are lacking in our public Ministry is application. That's my perspective in our circles. Uh, You take Romans, the greatest explanation of the gospel that that we have. Romans 1 through Romans 8. Uh, You have uh, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11. Israel past, Israel present, Israel future. And then in Romans 12, a passage we're all familiar with, the Apostle Paul transitions and he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He begins to apply the truths that he's taught. And so he says, in light of the gospel, you should offer your body a living sacrifice. In light of the gospel, you should use your spiritual gifts. In light of the gospel, you should behave like a Christian. In light of the gospel, you should submit to your government. In light of the gospel, you should love one another. In light of the gospel, you should let every Christian stand before his master all by himself. Who are you to judge another person's servant? 
In light of the gospel, you ought to bear one another's burdens. Does that make sense? It's all application. This was just, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, years into, into my local public ministry, I was reading Ephesians and I realized one through three is positional truth. It's the blessing that a believer has in Christ. Praise God. Four through six is how we ought to walk in light of the truth that he presented in one through three. So in the mind of the Apostle Paul, half teaching and half application is a good balance. At that point, I was like 98% teaching. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a biblical goal. Half and half is a biblical goal. And I have to say at the beginning, that was hard. I started trying to transition to apply. And so these days, what I try to do, now, of course, I feel the freedom to vary from this. But what I try to do is point number one, biblical truth. And then you illustrate that. And then you apply that. Point number two, you go through your biblical truth. Then you illustrate that, then you apply that. Point number three, you go through your biblical truth. Then you illustrate that, then you apply that. And then point number four in my, in my outlines, as a norm, is application. Let's apply the things that we've talked about today. Until we get to that biblical stage, our public ministry that is supposed to stir the heart, technically, literally, revival amongst the believers, uh, it's not there. So, um, point number two in my outline, obstacles to preaching that stirs the heart. I'm just going to quickly go through this. Um, obstacle number one, ungifted ministry. Ungifted ministry. First uh, Corinthians 14 and verse number 29 says, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. You can learn so much from that. First of all, it's, it's um, two or three, so it's not a one-man ministry. Secondly, it's prophets, so it's not an everyman ministry. I think there's times where we've so swung away from one-man ministry that we've gotten so far towards everyman ministry that we're just killing ourselves. We end up with an ungifted ministry. If all we ever had was a choice between everyman ministry and one-man ministry, these are both errors, right? If all we had was a choice between those two, I have no question in my mind I would take the one-man ministry. You have one gifted brother that loves God's people, is willing to labor in the word of God and feed God's people. I would take that any day over an everyman ministry. Worse, we've swung away like, to an unbiblical extent, in my, in my opinion. And we don't have preaching that, that stirs the heart because we have brothers that aren't supposed to function that way, that are functioning that way. Obstacles to, to preaching that stirs the heart. Unprepared ministry. We had a homiletics course in our assembly this last spring, and I forget the exact number. I think it was somewhere around 23 men in the assembly showed up on a Friday night and all day Saturday and then continuing in different ways to go through homiletics. Praise the Lord. An unprepared ministry. Unclear ministry. We already talked about the biblical emphasis on clarity. Unprofitable ministry. What's the end result of it? I know a brother that's been preaching in his assembly for six years and the, and the answer 80% of the time, the answer when, when asked, oh, so-and-so spoke today, what did he speak about? 80% of the time, the answer is, I, I don't know. They're not being cruel. They just, they don't know. They don't know what he was trying to say. You know, I have to say, I don't know, maybe this is of the flesh and maybe the Lord will rebuke me. I just have to say that it's frustrating to me 
when when the leadership of a local meeting won't deal with things like that you're torturing the people of God and they're not they're not um okay I'm going to stop there okay anyways um unprofitable ministry unburdened ministry okay for sake of time I'm going to I'm going to shift gears thank you lord for your restraint okay so preaching that stirs the heart um Praying that stirs the heart. Point number three in my outline. I just have two more. Point number three in my outline is just simply praying that stirs the heart. And if you want to jot it down, uh, just like preaching, it is a needed goal. Go to Colossians, if you would, in chapter four. Colossians chapter 4 and verse number 2. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Colossian Christians and he says this to them. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So just take that simple instruction. Um, I have this as A in my outline. You have to live it. You have to live it. And really what I want you to think about is the Apostle Paul who gave this instruction. If you're not living this, this would just follow, fall like, like an echo, or sorry, like an empty exhortation on the ears of the people of God. You think of the man of prayer that the Apostle Paul was. And then he writes the Colossian Christians and he says, as you continue on from this point, I want you to do so earnestly in prayer. So prayer that stirs the heart. So I'm just going to ask this in, in total simplicity and, and, and beg, as I've been doing today, the Spirit of God to use it in this audience. Are you, before the living God, continuing earnestly in prayer right now? Search me, O God. Is that you? Are you continuing earnestly in prayer? Or is that not descriptive of you? Is your assembly continuing earnestly in prayer? Are you limping along in prayer? Continue earnestly in prayer. Now, I want you to notice that it doesn't say continue earnestly physically attending the midweek prayer meeting. It doesn't say that, right? Sometimes we put all of our emphasis. Again, I would say I was probably guilty of this for 10 years. Hugely emphasizing faithfulness to the midweek prayer meeting. Is that the standard of God's word? The standard of God's word is to continue earnestly in prayer. You know, I find myself wondering, um, we all agree on this, right? Breaking of bread is this size. Family Bible hour is this size. Prayer meeting is this size. Almost everywhere you go, right? Why is that true? You know, I've started to wonder before the Lord, like as for weeks, as I've been preparing these thoughts, putting these things together, I just keep wondering over and over again. I wonder how much of it has to do with leadership. And the Lord knows I'm not trying to be hard on God's leaders. The leaders of the people of God want to do well. They want to give an account with joy. They feel the burden of the work. But I'm just asking, I wonder how much of it has to do with leadership. Is your assembly continuing on earnestly in prayer? If they're not, are you continuing on earnestly in prayer? 
If you're not, I would suggest to you that you cannot lead the people of God where you yourself have never been. And as humbly as I can before the Lord, I would suggest to you that you're part of the problem. What would revival look like in your life if you're not continuing earnestly? I think of football. 104 degrees, you've got full pads. It feels like wearing a winter coat and a scarf and gloves and and a hat and you run wind sprints up and down the field, right? You've got guys over there vomiting on the sidelines. You know, that's earnest, right? You're earnestly, right? And Paul says to the Colossian Christians, as you continue on from this point, I want you to do so in your Christian life earnestly in prayer. Not faithfully attending the midweek prayer meeting. The standard is... Man, I know it's probably hyperbole, but almost infinitely higher than that. What would revival look like in your life if you if you recognize tonight that your life does not match up to God's word? It's simple, right? You go to the Lord and and you say, you showed me very clearly tonight that I fall short of the glory of your son. He was a man of prayer. There's clear instruction in your word to continue earnestly. I have not done that. I know my assembly that that you've entrusted to me as an under-shepherd. I know my assembly is not continuing on in prayer the way the Scripture paints the picture. And I'm here to take my part as as the leader, a leader, an under-shepherd. I've not followed Christ the way I, I should. You name your sin before God and then you say, please change me to be like your son. Are you enjoying prayer more than you've ever enjoyed it before in your life? I hope for many of you that's true. This is just simply a a reflection of God's grace in my life. He who began a good work will complete it. I'm enjoying prayer more than I ever have before in my life. I'm enjoying intimacy with Jesus Christ. That quiet, intimate place on my face before God. This is new to me. A couple of years ago, I would not have been able to say this. You get on your face before God in your office... And there are times where I enjoy that so much that at the end of it, I say to the Lord, Lord, thank you and praise you that when I say amen, I'm not saying goodbye. You just enjoy his presence. There, You get to where you would rather weep in the presence of God than go to another Christian party. We love to party. I don't mean worldly parties. I mean Christian parties. We call it fellowship, right? <laughs> it's really nachos. But we love we love to party. Um, are you continuing on earnestly in prayer? Um, go to First Peter chapter four, if you would. First Peter chapter four and verse number seven. First Peter four seven. It says, "But the end of all things is at hand." Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. One of our trusted commentators on on, uh, the original Greek here says that that serious um, in the original means self-restrained or disciplined. What's the number one thing that I personally have lacked in my Christian life when it comes to prayer? This would be a discipline. So again, I'm just asking on behalf of a Savior that I, I... I want him to have the bride that he deserves. That's revival. I want him to have a revived bride. 
It's not right that my wife loves me with a more focused, more intense, more devoted love than his bride loves him. I'm jealous on his behalf. So I'm asking this question. Are you disciplined in your prayers? At least it's a goal, right? These are high standards. I just want to throw a couple things out there for the encouragement of the people of God. One of the number one most encouraging things in my life in prayer in the past five years is as a response to this verse years ago, I decided I want to be disciplined in prayer. And I'll tell you, I do not have a disciplined personality. Some people have that, right? Disciplined, monastic. I respect these kind of people. Four in the morning people, right? That's not how God built me naturally. I have to impose discipline on myself. And so I decided years ago, I want to obey that verse, be disciplined in prayer. So I set it up to pray with five guys, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. That has been, maybe it shouldn't be this way, but that has been the most encouraging habit in my life in terms of disciplining myself in prayer. Tuesday's the same guy every week. Wednesday's the same guy every week, mostly. Thursday's the same guy every week. Monday and Friday are floaters. My life is crazy. Their life is crazy. So we just do it when we can do it. That has been a hugely helpful habit. Praying that stirs the heart. You know, I love the verse, the hunger of a man drives him on. The whole reason I'm sharing this is, is I would love to see people say, okay, that is the standard of God's word. I should be continuing earnestly. I should be leading my assembly in earnest prayer. Okay, how do you get from where we are now to where we are praying earnestly before the Lord? What my encouragement is, is don't get up and pound the pulpit. This is what I did in my 20s, right? You pound the pulpit, you read the verses, you exhort the people of God to attend the prayer meeting. And they go, and they do. They attend the prayer meeting for about two months, and then they go, right? And then you wait for a while. I mean, we all want to be gracious, right? And so you wait for a little while and then you pound the pulpit and you read more verses and you exhort the people of God and they go, right? And then two months later they go, right? It just doesn't work. I found that provoking the people of God to jealousy is far more effective than trying to exhort the people of God to physically attend the prayer meeting. Does that make sense? And so what you want to do when you work amongst God's people is create a hunger for prayer. I don't want to embarrass him, but I still remember Steve Price the first time that we talked on a cell phone and then he said, okay, let's pray, right? I was probably 23 years old and and 24, somewhere in there. He said, okay, let's pray. And I thought to myself, can you do that on a cell phone? (laughs) I mean, it was just a completely new concept to me, right? And And then every conversation that ended, he wanted to pray, right? I thought that was really weird. And but pretty soon it became normal. And then I found myself with other people talking on the phone and just almost out of habit saying, "Okay, let's pray before we go. Right. You create a hunger amongst the people of God. The hunger of a man drives drives him on. Um, One more uh, scripture, Luke chapter 11, if you would. I love this one. The Lord Jesus is teaching on prayer in Luke chapter 11. He's teaching his disciples how to pray. I just want to focus in on one little verse. Luke chapter 11 and verse number 13. Of course, he says so many things here, but just look at this one verse. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 
Now, I have this in my outline. This is letter C. Forgive me, I don't think I gave you B. You have to be disciplined is B. But letter C is you have to pray biblically. I know we would all agree on that, but I'm really rebuking myself here. Uh, For years, most of my Christian life, I would have read this, slapped a dispensational tag on it, and never thought about it again. And then I started to study these things more deeply. I just, I'm hungering to know the Lord better. And that has driven me to these kinds of passages. And so looking into this more deeply, I thought, what does that mean? How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, because they do a better job than I'm capable of doing, I just want to read you what J.G. Bellet says and then what William McDonald says, because I think they do such a good job of capturing this. J.G. Bellet says this. It is a significant or it is significant that the gift that he selects as the one we most need and the one he most desires to give is the Holy Spirit. When Jesus spoke these words, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given. John 7:39. We should not pray today for the Holy Spirit to be given to us as an indwelling person because he comes to indwell us at the time of our conversion. Romans 8, Ephesians 1. But it is certainly proper and necessary for us to pray for the Holy Spirit in other ways. We should pray that we will be teachable by the Holy Spirit, that we will be guided by the Spirit, and this is the one I long for, that His power will be poured out on us in all our service for Christ. William MacDonald says this, It is quite possible that when Jesus taught taught the disciples to ask for the Holy Spirit, He was referring to the power of the Spirit, enabling them to live the otherworldly type of discipleship which He had been teaching in the preceding chapters. By this time, they were probably feeling how utterly impossible it was for them to meet the tests of discipleship in their own strength. This, of course, is true. The Holy Spirit is the power that enables one to live the Christian life. So Jesus pictured God as anxious to give this power to those who ask. In the original Greek, verse 13 does not say that God will give the Holy Spirit, but rather he will give Holy Spirit without the article. Professor H.B. Sweet pointed out that when the article is present, it refers to the person himself. But when the article is absent, it refers to his gifts or operations on our behalf. So in this passage, it is not so much a prayer for the person of the Holy Spirit, but rather for his ministries in our lives. This is further borne out by the parallel passage in Matthew 7:11, which reads, How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? In the past, I never would have, I would not have prayed that prayer. I, would, I, would, I just didn't understand it. That we'll be teachable by the Holy Spirit, that we'll be guided by the Holy Spirit, and that His power will be poured out on us in all our service for Jesus Christ. So, obstacles to praying that stirs the heart. Obstacles to praying that stirs the heart. Um, covetousness, which is idolatry. Prayerlessness which is adultery, according to James chapter 4. If you read Colossians 4 and say, I am not continuing earnestly in prayer. If you read 1 Peter chapter 4 and say, I am not serious, disciplined, self-restrained in my prayers to God. On behalf of Jesus Christ, his perspective is that's adultery. That's cheating on Jesus Christ. What would revival look like? If the word of God puts its finger on you tonight and says, you're cheating on my son through prayerlessness, what would revival look like? Confess. Repent. Turn to God from your sin. 
Ask the Lord to change you and to conform you to his word, a newfound conformity to the word of God. Selfishness, this is all James chapter 4. Worldliness, bad marriages, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7. A lack of understanding, a lack of teaching, a lack of leadership in prayer. And then finally, sin. If you regard iniquity in your heart, the Lord will not hear. So we need preaching that stirs the heart. Biblical preaching leads to revival. I would like to throw this out there. There's a book called Continuous Revival by Grubb. It's probably, I think it's 65 pages. It's just a little book. Boy, I enjoyed that. I, if I titled it, I would call it The Normal Christian Life. It's the, it's the Christian life the way it should be lived. The Christian life should be a life of repentance, right? Uh, I just said it. And then I, yeah, Continuous Revival by Grubb. Yeah, and let me throw one more out there. A Revival of People Saturated with God by Brian Edwards. Who's read that one? Good. It's Revival of People Saturated with God by Brian Edwards. He does a masterful job of looking at historical revival, biblical revival. Masterful job. What we want in these days is a true, deep revival in the church of God. I have little sympathy with the idea that God is going to reach the masses by a cold, formal church. The time has come that judgment must begin with the house of God, with us. That's D.L. Moody. I believe that today, by its lukewarmness and formality, the Christian church is making more infidels than all the books that infidels ever wrote. I do not fear infidel lectures half as much as the cold and dead formalism in the professing church at the present time. What we want is to get a hold of God in prayer. What we want is to get a hold of God in prayer. We are not going to reach the masses by great sermons. We want to move the arm that moves the world. To do that, we must be clean and right before God. D.L. Moody. What we want is to get a hold of God in prayer. I want to close by telling you something I'm incredibly encouraged about. Um, There have been a a group of burdened men that have been asking the Lord for years, literally years, um, Lord, what do you think of the idea of calling for, um, whether you call it a prayer conference, whatever you want to call it, it is not a conference to come and listen to people talk about prayer. It's a conference to come and seek the face of God. So a group of burdened men have been asking the Lord for years about, about this idea. A brother from Texas, I don't honestly even remember his name, but I have his letter sitting at home on my desk. He listened to the ministry from Rise Up and he wrote this letter. And it's just a short little letter, but in it he says, he says this, I go down to my office and I sit before the Lord and I weep over the state of the church in North America, over the state of the bride of Christ. And he said, I take my tears off of my face and I stain the wall in my office as a testimony to my cries before our God. Now here, we've been praying for years. Lord, do you want us to call for, provide a format where the people of God all across North America can come and seek the face of God? And this guy, in his letter that I have on my desk, he says, would somebody please call for a North American week of prayer? Now, I could tell you 10 stories. I'm already over time, and I'm not going to tell you 10 stories. I'll tell you one more. Um, I passed like ships in the night with Joe Reese. 
um, at a family camp this summer. He was week number one. I was week number two. So I came in a few days early. There we were together. And Joe Reese, seemingly just randomly, although I know it's not, came up to me out of the blue and he said, Scott, if you will call for a North American week of prayer and if you will put it out far enough on the schedule that I can get it on my calendar, I will be there. And again, I could tell you story after story after story like that. And the only reason I'm telling you this is it became abundantly, obviously clear that the living God through his people was saying, do it. We don't want to stand behind the Lord, nor do we want to run ahead of the Lord. It has to be of the Lord, his work. So I am so happy to tell you that it became abundantly, obviously clear that the living God was leading this way. So May 18 to 22, Lord willing, in Kansas City, Kansas we're going to have the first North American week of prayer. Our mindset is that we're already planning to have two. Again, the dates are May 18 to 22. That is the week that leads up to uh, Memorial Day weekend, if you want to benchmark that in your mind. For those of you that think about these things, that this is on your grid, Memorial Day weekend in Kansas City, Kansas is Vessels of Honor. So if your young people wanted to come out early, North American week of prayer, Monday through Friday. Monday will be a travel day. We'll begin in the will of our great God on Monday night. We'll pray Tuesday, pray Wednesday, pray Thursday, and then we will end, Lord willing, on Friday morning. A lot of the people that are already planning to be there will have to fly out to conferences on the Friday. So you can fly into Kansas City, fly out of Kansas City. There are a lot of details that still have to be put together. We're working on a website, Facebook page, all the rest of it, just a way for people to register and get information. But I'm excited that the living God has led us this way. Five years ago, a good friend of mine and I um, were just burdened about these things. And then four years ago, we would have said to each other, you can see a cloud the size of a man's hand. And then three years ago, you could see stirrings amongst the people of God. And two years ago, there was this great hunger for prayer. Manitoba and Southern California and just all these different places where people are banding together to pray. And it's just growing and growing and growing. Boy, I would love to share more with you. The first time we ever had regional prayer, I sat there and I said, Lord, they're not going to come. They're not going to come. Lord, they're not going to come. They're not going to come. This is in the dark, trying not to disturb my lovely wife, right? Middle of the night. Lord, they're not going to come. They're not going to come. I wasn't wrong, by the way. They didn't come, really, right? There's just a handful of people willing to come out and seek God for an all-day Saturday day of prayer and fasting. And then it grew. And then it grew. We had another one recently. It's the biggest one that we've had yet. It's just a delight to watch the hand of God moving amongst his people. Jesus Christ deserves a bride that is passionate about him, a revived bride, a bride with no hindrance between her and the Savior, pure, unhindered intimacy. May the Lord help us. Father, we commit this to you. Thank you for the opportunity to, to open your word. Thank you for the opportunity to, um, to look at your word tonight. Please, by your omnipotent power, take these feeble thoughts and, and just use them according to your perfect will. Father, please move in this crowd so that, so that Jesus Christ gets the intimacy that he, that he requests, that he delights in, that he deserves. Father, please move so that your people are blessed. Father, you're an amazing God. You've been faithful to every generation. We know you'll be faithful to our generation. You're more committed to these things than we are. Please help us to wrap our feeble minds around these things. Father, as your servant, I just commit these feeble thoughts to you and pray that you would take them and make some good come out of it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.